first thing you thought of after having reached the highest point of Earth when you stood there on the summit of summits? And he answered for me as well when he said, how to get down. Apparently liberals don't listen to the radio, or, or they already have NPR. I hesitate to even talk about it as conservative opinion. It's really right-wing crazy stuff. And my wife would always say, Brad, it's not about you and your stories. It's about them and the stories they are sharing. And I, and I, I just I love to use that analogy because we all like to talk about ourselves. That's mountain climber Jim Whitaker, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist David Horsey, and entrepreneur Brad Taylor. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I'm going to replay an interview I had with mountain climber Jim Whitaker, the first American to summit Mount Everest in 1963. When I interviewed him 22 years ago, he was about to embark on a sailing trip around the world with his family. Not enough adventure in his life. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner David Horsey has been a cartoonist for the Bellevue Journal-American, Seattle P.I., and the L.A. Times. He is now back in Seattle working his magic with the Seattle Times. We had a wide-ranging conversation about his career highlights and some observations he has about the country today. And finally, Brad Taylor, author of Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism, will round out today's show, and he will suggest what he believes to be the key ingredients for succeeding in your own business. Back with my conversation with the first American to climb Mount Everest, James W. Whitaker, in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. interview with the first American to climb Mount Everest in 1963, Jim Whitaker. Jim grew up in West Seattle with his twin brother Lou and has been living in Port Townsend for many, many years with his wife Diane. Now this interview took place about 22 years ago. I spoke with him just as he was about to embark on a sailboat journey that would take him around the world with his wife Diane and two young sons. Now the sailboat voyage I think took about two to three years. In 1955, Jim Whitaker became the first employer of the Recreational Equipment Company, or better known today as REI, and then he became the first CEO in the 1960s. Historical footnote, among many in Jim Whitaker's life, in 1965, Jim led Robert Kennedy to the top of Mount Kennedy in Canada. The Canadian government had just named a mountain peak in Yukon, Canada, after the late President John F. Kennedy. My first question to Jim... When did he know that he wanted to climb mountains? Um, I was a Boy Scout back there in 272 in West Seattle and uh, a long time ago, and we used to take hikes up in the Olympics and Cascades, and 
they led up the trails led up to the mountains and so we learned a little bit about scrambling and so forth and get up in some pretty hairy places and then decided hey we better learn something about it so i joined the mountaineers club and began uh, went through the climbing course and so forth and then uh early in uh, 1948 i began to guide up on on Mount Rainier, uh, taking people out to the ice caves and up to the summit. And do you remember, like, a defining moment when you said, this is what I want to do? I knew I loved the outdoors early on, uh, you know, even before Boy Scout. My parents would take me for walks down to the beach there and, and Fauntleroy and so forth, and I w- would walk from Fauntleroy all the way up to Arbor Heights every day to, from home to school and back. And, and uh, you know, I just grew to love the outdoors, and so that this was sort of a natural extension of it. And... and uh, Everything is so clean. Nature's a good teacher. We, you know, it's it's wonderful to stand up on top of mountains and to be in the forest. And actually, we've been programmed for centuries to do that. You know, so it's just recently we've been locked up in buildings and on these uh, in these bottles with wheels that go down asphalt trails. Your parents were they outdoorsmen, or was this something yeah. that you kind of adopted? So they were. They kind of yeah, they led the way. Of, yeah, they sort of led the way. And uh, you know, the out of doors is all. Yeah, it's been my life. And so, you know, the climbing was a part of it. REI was selling equipment that would let people go into the out-of-doors. And so that was, you know, sort of my my vocation. And then, and then my hobbies were climbing and skiing and all of that stuff, sailing. You climb on Mount Everest in 1963. How did that develop and all come together? Well, I've been climbing, uh, guiding on Rainier, and was my both my brother and I, Lou, were well known as as strong, very strong climbers, and so I got a phone call from Norman Durnford, the Swiss fellow that lived in Santa Monica and had thought about forming an expedition to climb Mount Everest, American expedition. So it was, you know, relatively unclimbed, and, uh, you know, so I got a phone call asking if I'd like to join uh, an American Mount Everest expedition, and, you know, it took me a long time to decide, almost 60 seconds, and I said, sure, and uh, was invited to go along. You know, the whole thing is a, is a series of exciting moments, uh, but I guess the worst was uh, the second day we were climbing on the mountain when we lost one of our, our team, uh, Jake Breitenbach, was a guide from Jackson, Wyoming, and uh, they were climbing an ice wall that I had gone up the day before to put route on. There was no other way around it. Uh, we had to go up the wall, and uh, Jake was there when the wall collapsed. Uh, and it killed him. So we lost one of our teams just the second day on the mountain, and that was a pretty tough, pretty tough thing to to overcome. Some of the team decided not to do that wall and would stay in base camp and help out, but not, but not climb the mountains. The rest of us thought, well, we we could, you know, we had more reason to cut the mountain even because of Jake. So what was it like standing on the top of Mount Everest? <laughs> I got asked that a lot, and uh, when we were, when I crawled out of the high camp at 27,500 feet with Gambu, a Sherpa that I was climbing with, uh, we were battered by 50 mile an hour winds, and it was 35 below zero uh, without the wind chill factor. So we started up in, in storms. No one else moved on the mountain that day. Everyone said it couldn't be climbed in that weather, and the weather was too bad to go out, so they stayed in their tents. But Tom and I had only enough oxygen to go to the summit or back down to lower camp. So it was my last and only chance to get to the summit of Mount Everest. So we took off and uh, fought our way up. I got some serious frostbite on the face. I was blind in one eye. When we reached the summit, we were out of bottled oxygen. We stood on the summit 20 minutes. And so we started down without bottled oxygen. They asked Gambu at our first press conference in New Delhi, they said, 
What was the first thing you thought of after having reached the highest point of Earth when you stood there on the summit of summits? And he answered for me as well when he said, how to get down. <laughs> that was the answer. Well, let's talk about your newest adventure, and that is a sail around the world. Just want to let the listeners know that you're talking to us from your sailboat. You're preparing it for a trip that's going to leave from Port Townsend on October 15th. All right, it's a circumnavigation of the planet. We thought we'd take our 11- and 13-year-old boys out uh, and, and show them a little bit about the world and, and about what a wonderful place it is if you can just get out in it. And what's your uh, route going to be? We'll go down the coast, uh, stop in Santa Cruz. We have friends there, and then go on down into San Diego, wait for the hurricane season to end in uh, Mexico, then go into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico for a few months, then head across into the Marquises. Uh, and uh, the South Seas. And then, of course, you go from there to Australia and then up into uh, the Solomons, up into the uh, Bay of India. We plan to leave our boat in Bombay. My friend Gambu, who climbed Everest with oh, okay. me, will have a family, his family I live on board while we go in for a trek to the base of Everest and take, the, take my two sons and a few other friends that might want to go. And then we'll come back to the boat and continue up north through Suez Canal and to... Uh, Mediterranean, and I've got friends in Russia from my peace climb in 1990 on Everest. We'll go see them at Odessa, and then uh, go into uh, Norway, Sweden, maybe even touch uh, Greenland, and then come back down the uh, Atlantic coast, Panama Canal, back up California. And then how long do you project this is going to take? We talked to people that say, yeah, they left. They started for years, a year's trip, and they're nine years later. <laughs> Yeah. Still into the trip, so we're saying two to three years uh, on a circumnavigation. But the thing is, if you find a country, you know, you're docked into a wonderful country that you know it's nice, and the children learning the language and so forth, and you might stay there a few months. It's hard to say. Well, I just don't think there's enough adventure in your life. Well, there's one thing we can give the children. They're not going to take a hell of a lot of money uh, from an, uh, any big inheritance or anything, but they we can give them a sense of of belonging to the planet, and it's a beautiful planet, and and uh, we want them to enjoy it as much as we have, and adventure is something that we can give the kids. The other thing is that we'll be communicating with children around the country through the eyes of our children of what, we'll have computers on board, so we'll be able to talk on the internet Wonderful. Uh, with the kids, so the kids will be oh, able to tell when we pull into a village or into a bay or somewhere of some foreign country, and, and maybe even go to the schools. Uh, they can convey what they see. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, taking the advantage of technology and, and meshing that together incredibly well. Absolutely. Actually, Microsoft is helping us uh, set up some equipment so we can communicate uh, on almost a weekly basis. Thank you very much, Jim. Hey, and good. again, best to you. Okay, same here. My thanks to Jim Whitaker for this interview from about 22 years ago. Jim wrote an autobiography in 1999 called Life on the Edge, Memoirs of Mount Everest and Beyond. It is a fun and fascinating read. And, uh, you know, not only can he climb mountains and sail the seas, he's a really good writer, too. I had the opportunity to visit with David Horsey, Pulitzer Prize-winning David Horsey, actually two Pulitzer Prizes, for his cartoons that he's been doing for many, many years. I've actually been observing his great work since the 1980s. 
After a stint with the L.A. Times, he is back in Seattle, and I visited with him at the Seattle Times offices. Pretty much everybody got their information from those places. So there wasn't any argument about reality. The argument was about policy and about, you know, what to do within the reality. Now it's, you get a totally different version of the world if you watch Fox News, uh, as opposed to reading the New York Times. And um, that, I think that reinforces that human tendency to forgive your leader or your champion. Um, if you never hear the negative, or if, as he's been very successful at doing, the, any negative news is fake, a lie, if you want to buy into that, then yeah, he's bulletproof. I used to think that if you presented a sound argument and a series of facts to people, they'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I was wrong. That's true. And <laughs> unfortunately, that is not the case. I mean, that a lot of people, and maybe more of us than we like to admit, are much more interested in accepting whatever reinforces our personal biases or, or, or our sense of the world. We're more likely to just go with that than we are to bravely abandon an opinion because the facts prove it wrong. Um, it's made me question my, my job in some ways, or question how to do it. Because even within the context of a political cartoon, I'm trying to make an argument based on what I think is sound reasoning or verifiable facts, but I realize it doesn't work. And especially with a cartoon, I think. So it's like, what, am I, what is my job here? So now I just decided. So you're questioning that now, like well, you never have before. Yeah, yeah, and but in, and then I decided. Well, I'm not sure I ever swayed anybody anyhow. So I just have to do what I do. Um, you know, I have this huge privilege of being able to put my view of the of politics in the world uh, out there. You know, three or four times a week and get paid to do it and. Your cartoons obviously get more play because you can look at it in two seconds, you know exactly what it is, and you're very talented at doing that. But then you accompany it at the times with a column or something like that. Are you as proud of those, or how do you treat that differently, and, and how do you approach yeah. that? Well, good question. Because when at the PI, uh, you know, I was doing cartoons four and five times a week, and then would occasionally write something. Um, but when I got to the LA Times, I ended up doing a a column with every cartoon. The process is the same. It all starts with there's some something in the news to to comment about, and so I, I, I try to gather as much information as I need to form a what I hope is a smart opinion, and then you know decide what I want to say. But then there, there's a big difference between taking that with a column and with a cartoon. With a cartoon, there's this leap. Um, that is the most challenging thing of my job where it's like how do I say what I want to say in an image that people are going to understand how do I whittle this down into the essence of what the issue is and so that, it's, that's always the stopping point it's like until I come up with that idea I cannot go further with a column I found it actually much easier it's like I know what I want to say I think of the first sentence and then just it goes um, and the more I did it, the better I was at that. 
it's the column that gets in. I would have thought office. opposite. Yeah, me too. That's but it was just, yeah. I want to talk to you about the fairness doctrine a little bit, just going along with that University of Maryland survey as to how we yeah. get to where we are now. Right. And then as soon as they pulled that back, Rush Limbaugh started. And then, right. you know, all that started going. And now, of course, we have, what's his name, Alex Jones, just to be right. absolute right. over here. And I'm sure there's going to be somebody even worse than Alex Jones. I feel a lot of the situation we're in now started with that. What do you think? No, I think that's exactly right. Unfortunately, kind of only by a few years preceded the technological revolution of the Internet. Um, but... Yeah, it, it, I think that's what created Rush Limbaugh. Talk radio was born. And for whatever reason, it's worked a lot better for conservatives than for liberals. Apparently, liberals don't listen to the radio, or, or they already have NPR. I hesitate to even talk about it as conservative opinion. It's really right-wing crazy stuff. Uh, you know, I, I really respect real people I consider real conservatives like George Will and I almost think like Rush Limbaugh you know would have been a liberal if he could have made millions of dollars oh yeah I don't think he yeah. cares because when he got in trouble I watched him he was on CBS Sunday morning it was like I'm just an entertainer people right. shouldn't believe me yeah. I'm just doing this you know, he falls back on that when he yeah. gets into trouble and if I'm a person who's listening to him regularly, I'd be insulted by that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, these guys are buffoons is what he's saying. They're right. listening to what I'm saying. I'm just doing this for fun. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And, and we still might have been okay, but I think the internet just suddenly it, it created a huge megaphone for the craziest people in the country and they could find each other. You know, I think they were, they've always been there, but you know, all these, I imagine them, you know, these sort of oddballs in their basement in their underwear, you know, typing on <laughs> keyboards, sending out horrible right. messages. But they used to all be alone. But now they are, they've, they've kind of been, they've become a, they're not mainstream, but they have become a big stream. That's two-time Pulitzer Prize winner cartoonist David Horsey. You can see David Horsey's cartoons in the Seattle Times. Brad Taylor has joined me, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurism. I first wanted to ask Brad, why and how did he become an entrepreneur? I think I've been an entrepreneur all my life. From the time I was, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, having paper routes, and then starting a landscaping business, etc. I mean, I think that it was in my DNA. I used to go to the library and read about, you know, entrepreneurs and, and just people, inventors, and all my siblings thought I was crazy. But in the 45 plus years that I've been working, you know, other than five years of working for someone who is my first true mentor, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And I think it was hard when, uh, when my wife and I got married in the uh, in the uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, we, uh, you know, she was a registered nurse, and so it was a whole different mindset because she was an employee. She had that employee mentality, and here she's marrying an entrepreneur. And we kind of talk about that in my book, Intentional Success, 
of, of marrying an entrepreneur. Yeah, I had a very similar circumstance, but you know, it's interesting, your, I guess, path to it was different than mine, and you say this is something you wanted to do pretty early on in your life, and um, this is something that I backdoored my way into. I mean, I worked for the government, I worked for private enterprise, and then I worked for the government again, I started a nonprofit, et cetera, and I was kind of out of options. It never really occurred to me to be an entrepreneur, but what the next choice was, was living on a park bench. So I thought I would give this a shot. Now, I had those, I guess, desires to be that I really wanted to run my own organization. But again, it was very late for me in terms of wanting to do this. Do you find that with other people, both sides of the uh, equation, when you talk to them? Well, not everyone has the guts or is willing to risk, uh, basically risk it all to to become an entrepreneur. And I think I respect both sides of the equation um, because you, you really have to be willing to just take that leap of faith and believe enough in yourself and have that confidence to make that decision. And if you do make that decision to become an entrepreneur, you cannot have an option B because the people that have an option B typically will fail because they have that safety net to go back to when adversities and challenges and struggles, uh, you know, face you. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it takes a real special person. But I will tell you this. I read something recently that 40 percent of the Americans – by the year, I think it's 2021 or something, will be entrepreneurs in some way, shape, or form. Um, either they'll have a second business where they're still working the traditional business, but that entrepreneurship, I think, is growing leaps and bounds in the country today. I would agree with that totally. That statistic I read all the time now, and a lot of people are working out of their own homes. I think it's like 40% they're expecting by that year you cited. And I couldn't agree with you more about that plan B, not to have that. You have to throw that out the door because there are certain times you're going to hit and you're going, why am I doing this? And if you have that safety net, as you said, you probably will take it. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it was really hard for my wife when, she, when we got married because here she's marrying somebody that has been an entrepreneur basically all his life, and she, she, she liked that that comfort zone. But I will tell you this, it wasn't even six years after we were married that we talked and we said, look, if we're really going to accomplish our goals together, you know, we need to work together. And she was a pediatric nurse. So basically she gave up her license that she worked so hard to get and we never looked back. Interesting. Similar circumstance with my wife. But a little different angle. She was working for corporate America. And one of the reasons that she was attracted to me was because I was an entrepreneur. And she felt that that sort of trajectory led me to be a, a different type of person, which she was attracted to. I think that entrepreneurs bring a whole different mindset, not just, you know, I think to the whole family atmosphere, because I think your kids, as they watch you, 
have a different appreciation for what you do. And all of our all of our kids over the years have watched, you know, us work really hard and have some struggles and have some successes, obviously. And uh, I think they have a better appreciation for um, what we do um, because, you know, nothing's handed to you. And that's how we've tried to raise our kids over the years. You have a outline that is uh, says about 12 intangibles to success, and there's 12 of them. We can't get all through those. And so as I read your 12 intangibles of success, one of those is relatability. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I think that today we all, no matter whether we're in the professional arena or we're just a husband or a, a dad or mom, we have to listen more. And we can't be so quick to come to an opinion or, or I, I, you know, my wife always points out to me that, you know, we're in an atmosphere where, where I'm meeting someone or we're talking to, to friends or, or, or business associates and, and someone is telling me a story and I really, really relate to that story. So I start to inject my two cents into the story because I can really relate to what they're saying. And my wife would always say, Brad, it's not about you and your stories. It's about them and the stories they're sharing. And I, and I, I just I love to use that analogy because we all like to talk about ourselves. And, and I think that it's so important to listen. Listen to, to your team. Listen to your kids. Listen to your wife, your spouse, your significant other. And, and because at the end of the day, we can get so much more accomplished and we can really understand truly what someone's saying by listening and just, just responding with, with small little tidbits of, of questions or comments. And I think, you know, it's human nature just to talk. And sometimes we lose sight of listening and I think that's really what you, relatability is. It's, it's having that communication skill, which is really hard. It was hard for me, just in the simple example I, I shared with you. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate your time again. That's Brad Taylor, and he's the author of a book called Intentional Success, The Power of Entrepreneurs. that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to Jim Whitaker, David Horsey, and Brad Taylor for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Quote of the week, I don't believe in a law from preventing a man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. So while we do not propose any war on capitalism, we do wish to allow the humblest man an equal chance to get rich with everyone else. Abraham Lincoln. Now, what's Voices of Experience all about? We interview people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, and as we did today, an emphasis on entrepreneurship. Just a reminder that Voices of Experience airs on Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and then repeated Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. 
You can also listen to all of the shows by Googling KKNW and then click on the podcasts and locate Voices of Experience and you are there. Have a great rest of the week.